Hey there, listeners. Thanks for stopping by to the podcast today. Please, before you're done listening to this episode, leave us a review. If you're on Spotify, you can review now. And you can also review on Apple Podcasts. But if there's any platforms that I'm forgetting about and you can leave us a review, please do so. If you're happening to watch us on YouTube, and if you don't know, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube now, uh, please like and subscribe to the channel and share the episode as well. So thanks for stopping by, everybody, and enjoy the episode. Knowledge is Power is where you come to hear people's life experiences to learn from. So, without further ado, let's roll the intro. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We'll one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. This is your host, Max Willett. We got another great guest on today. So if you could introduce yourself, that would be great. What's going on? My name is Dylan Adler. I'm the founder of MindLock and I'm a uh, professional mental performance coach. Great. Uh, yeah, so I got referred to Dylan through uh, Ross Levine and uh, this episode should be posted a couple episodes after Ross or maybe the episode after Ross. Uh, so I think it's great to have both you guys on to, to sort of, you know, uh, go off of each other. Uh, he explained a lot of the physical stuff that goes into what he does. And it's going to be really interesting to hear the mental side of, of what goes on in training and sports training and whatnot. Uh, but first let's get to know you a little bit, Dylan. So why don't you go ahead and tell us your sort of life story and how you got to the points you are in your life right now. Yeah, for sure. So I'm uh, I'm up here in Canada. Um, I was born I was born in Vancouver, and then you know when I was when I was two, my parents moved to uh, to Toronto. So you know more on the east side. Um, you know, growing up there, did a lot of sports, very active. That was kind of like my favorite thing to do. And when I was five, my parents put me in Taekwondo. Um, so I did that for you know I, that's kind of what I started with, and like most martial arts schools i don't know how familiar you are with that system but a lot of kind of traditional martial arts like taekwondo karate whatever they're more recreationally based as opposed to being like competitive right so you know you assume martial artist you know you must be a competitor not a lot there's not a lot of overlap um so the place that i was at was one of those recreational clubs so we learned the basics we got our belts um, but nothing in the realm of kind of competing. And for me, that was like my favorite thing to do. Like I loved to spar. I loved to fight when we, when they let us kind of at the gym and we, there was just no opportunities to, to kind of pursue that further. So in, uh, in 2011, I ended up making a switch to, to a different club in, in Toronto called Authentic Taekwondo. And that's really where I started to gear my skills towards competing you know, where I had a black belt at the time when I moved, but, you know, my skill level and talent level was very, very far below a black belt level. So I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, and, and from there, I ended up uh, becoming a multiple uh, national champion. Uh, I was one of the first Canadians to win the U.S. Open in back to back years, which is like a really, really big international tournament. Uh, I was named captain of the Canadian national Taekwondo team in, in 2015. Um, and, and I had a world ranking in the top 40 when I was like 17, 16, 17. So, you know, starting from you know, maybe not the best roots in being geared for competition, but very quickly understanding kind of what it took to get there and being able to uh, to do that. And, you know, ever since then, um, kind of switching sides and, and going from the athlete to the coach side and now being a mental coach to, to some of the best athletes in the world, whether it's UFC or Bellator, Olympians, football players, soccer. So it's been cool to make that that adjustment also. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Very cool stuff. Um, so. Did you say you got into Taekwondo when you were five? Yeah. So I know this is an interesting question, but obviously you can't really remember what life was like before being involved in Taekwondo, Taekwondo correct? Mm -hmm. So how, how do you how do you think it affected your life, you know, as a young child? Did, and, and did it help you in different life lessons or anything like that? How did it affect you? 
Hey, that's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about why parents put their kids into martial arts, a lot of the time it's for self-defense. A lot of the time it's for discipline. Um, for me, I didn't really struggle growing up. Like I wasn't a kid that got into a lot of fights. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't have that story of I got bullied a lot and I got into fights and my parents put me to defend myself. It was more so something to do. Um, and for me, at least the way it helped me was a lot of the traditional aspects, you know, they call it kind of like the tenets of Taekwondo. So perseverance, indomitable spirit, integrity, right? So all of those character traits, um, that you just, you just don't learn in school. Um, so for me being able to grow up in a very disciplined environment, um, I had a lot more respect for my masters in the gym than I did for my teachers, um, than I did for kind of other people. So, you know, having a place of like, you know, I, I was a rebellious kid in school and I like to cause trouble and be a smart ass and, and stuff like that. But when it came to Taekwondo, like that's where I was like always on. And my parents, if they ever wanted to threaten me, it wasn't like, we're going to go tell your principal. It was like, we're going to go tell your master. I was like, no, 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 you know, don't do that. So I think for me having a place of, you know, a very disciplined environment. And like I said, it might not have been a, a, a club geared for competitors, but it was very tough um, they they made sure that we were mentally tough, physically tough, and a lot of the stuff that we were doing was was hard. Um, and I think growing up being a martial artist from a you know a young kid, you learn a lot of these traits that you might not have learned as quickly, just kind of going about life the normal way. Very cool. Um, so let's get into sort of after high school. Did you end up going to college anywhere? Yeah. So, so for me, high school was, um, was different also because that was kind of at the peak of when I was competing internationally. Yeah. So I, I was, you know, I think in, in my grade 12 year, I think the second semester had like 82 days or, or something in, it, and I had like 46 absences. So I was gone wow. all the yeah. time traveling from Europe, Asia, uh, you name it, just, just competing. So for me, you know, high school is really where I had to figure it out, um, and, and make sure that I was staying on top of it because, you know, Taekwondo is a, it's a great sport, but it's not a, uh, it's not a career. You know, this isn't the UFC. This isn't the NBA where it's like, when you really make it, you make it. And, and that's the career. There has to be something beyond it. So, you know, I always kept in mind, like as successful as I am in sport, like I need to keep my grades up and, and get into university. So uh, I did go to university. I went to, uh, I went to York university in Toronto. And then a couple of years later, transferred to Ottawa and graduated from the, uh, the university of Ottawa in, in psychology. Psychology. Okay. So after you had finished up your Taekwondo career, when did you realize you're like, Hey, you know, maybe I should get into the more mental aspect of sports training. So I, I always had those ideas kind of parallel to each other. I mean, there was a lot of overlap even at a younger age. So, so like I said before, when I joined the newer club in, in 2011, realizing that you know, I wasn't where I needed to be uh, and I needed to make some some drastic improvements. Um, the mental game is something I leaned into a lot. So, you know, I realized quickly that at a high level, the margins to victory are very small. Right. You know, what separates the gold medalist from the silver medalist? What what you know separates the champion from the runner up? Everybody's going to be fast. Everybody's going to be strong. Nobody knows a certain kick or punch that the other person doesn't know. So what what's it come down to? And, and I realized that, okay, it, the variable has to be something mental. It's who is able to perform through their nerves, who is able to, you know, be flexible when the chaos of the environment is distracting. So, you know, I, I put a real emphasis on really training my mentality in terms of whether it was visualizing things or meditating or studying game tape on my opponents before I would compete against them. So I always had a sense that, the mental game is very important. And the more I traveled uh, to different countries and saw different kind of Olympic programs, I realized that it was a huge missing component. I mean, you know, every team had their team doctor, every team had their nutritionist or their dietitian, um, but nobody had anything on the mental side. And for me, it was, again, I was like, man, how are we, how are we missing this, right? A lot of the time when you look at underperformance, anybody that loses at a high level for the most part, you're not getting outclassed at that level. You're not getting, you know, any, anything major difference wise. It's it's those little, little differences um, that usually come down to something mental. So for me, the fact that there were none of these high level Olympic caliber programs that, you know, employed somebody to help with that, or even just had a program in place was like astounding. So I knew, you know, I always knew that career wise, you know, that was something that, that I wanted to do. I mean, if you looked at my like eighth grade yearbook, 
you know, where it says, what do you want to be in, in 20 years? And everybody says fireman or actor or whatever. Mine said sports psychologist. So I guess from a, even as a kid, I, I had an idea of kind of where I wanted to go with it. And I just started way sooner than I thought, realizing, hey, like I could wait and do this later. I can do this now. And, you know, let's try it now. And if it works great, if it doesn't work, then at least I'll know. Yeah. Interesting. And so you didn't have a mental coach when you were training or, or anything like that, really. I had so prior to so I, I competed at a, at a really big qualification event for the Youth Olympic Games in uh, in 2014. So prior to the Youth Olympics, there was like a Canadian uh, like fight off. So everybody kind of got together and like the winners would represent the division, go to Taiwan and represent Canada amongst every other country to try to earn a spot in the Olympics. So prior to that, our, our coach had set up um, a few sessions with uh, with a sports psychologist um, to prepare for it. It was. I think we probably did three or four. And again, it was cool. Uh, it was helpful, but it wasn't life-changing. And I think that's mm. the experience that most people have when they work with someone like that, which is like, okay, like I can see why it helps, but you know, nothing crazy. And and that's kind of the experience I had. So aside from that, maybe two or three weeks of, of meeting with someone with a few of my teammates, that was the exposure that, that I had. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you were very lucky. You were one of the kids who always knew what they wanted to do when they got into college and uh, had a head start too, because you were you were in the profession already that you wanted to be in eventually. So how do you think that helped kickstart your career in uh, mental training? For which part? For having an idea, kind of at an early age. Yeah. So yeah. So like when you were a kid. In eighth grade, you said you knew you wanted to, to be in sports psychology, right? Yeah. And by the time you were done fighting, you went into college for psychology. So how did being around that aspect and and, and basically learning the, the different things that the other people need to know when they went to go fight, how did that help kickstart your college career and then eventually your career in mental training? Yeah, I think, you know, what I think it comes down to experience, you know what I mean? There's there's a mm -hmm. lot of things that you can learn in school um, and you're learning it fresh, right? So you, you take a course and it's interesting or you're you're curious by it, but you have to learn it, right? And, and not to say that there weren't things to learn, but to be able to come in with an understanding of, oh, I've been there. I know what it feels like we're talking about performance anxiety and stress factors. It's one thing to read it in a book. It's another thing to be there and to live it, right? So I think in terms of Head Start, being able to experience these things in real life makes a huge difference, right? You know, you can read a thousand books on real estate, but until you've sold a house, you know, it's a completely different experience. So I think for me, being able to absolutely live that from a, from a young age and, and be competing and representing Canada on the biggest stages around the world and all these different countries, it gives a different level of context. And, and when consulting with athletes later, even though I'm younger, obviously there wasn't that aspect or most of the time there wasn't an aspect of, well, who are you? Right. You know, what do you know? You're just a kid. It was like, well, there's, there's this mutual respect because athletes respect athletes. And, you know, regardless of your journey or your story or where you ended up, there's a, there's a mutual understanding of, okay, this person gets it. And I think that was what allowed me to, break a lot of those barriers early on being younger was like, okay, you know, maybe I haven't been doing this for 35 years and have a PhD, but I've been in that ring with the crowd cheering and booing mm -hmm. and the nerves and the fear. Let's work on this together. And I think that that mutual respect, uh, you know, carried a, a lot of weight. Yeah. And was there anything in college that you can specifically point to and say, I use that every day in my career now, uh, that you didn't learn prior to college? I, I'd, I'd love to have a long list for you, but honestly, you know, candidly, my answer is no. Um, I find that in university, um, I was, I've never been a fan of school, honestly. Um, and there were moments even throughout university, I was like, do I, do I still want to do this? And, and I pushed through it obviously with, you know, family and, and friends and encouraged me to do it. And I did well. I mean, academically I did well. I just didn't have a passion for it. And I think, that was my challenge. I think, like you said, having a head start, how did that help me in university? I, I think it actually kind of hurt me a little bit because I knew what I wanted to do. I think university is an amazing 
environment where you're not so sure what you want. It gives you opportunities to learn. It gives you experiences trying new things and seeing what's out there. For me, I almost found the opposite of like, because I know so specifically what I want, everything else that I'm doing that doesn't directly influence this, to me, I felt like was a waste of time, right? Why am I taking these electives? Why am I taking these classes when I know what I want to do? And even the classes geared towards that weren't as specific as they could be. So I almost felt the reverse of like, because I knew so specifically what I wanted to do and was doing it and didn't have that like one-to-one, like, okay, this is exactly what we're using and how you're going to use it in your domain. I felt it was more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, So I have some other questions about your career now. Uh, So obviously I think, and it's great to see this in modern sports, there's a large focus on mental on the mental aspect of a lot of different sports. Uh, so do you find yourself going up to athletes and saying, Hey, this is what I do or do more often than not, do they come to you? It's almost exclusively, uh, you know, me going to them because I think okay. where we're at, I think you have a good point, which is that now more than ever, there is an understanding or at least a familiarity with mental health, wellness, and sports i think the curiosity doesn't always translate into people being educated on it and and why would they this is still new right i think like you said you spoke to ross you know the the other week if i'm a physiotherapist and i approach you you know what i do just you know you just naturally know because you've, you've been around it you know what i do i just have to explain why you want to choose me maybe right i don't have to explain to you what the practice is when it comes to mental training and, and mental performance there is a big aspect of okay but what is it how does it actually work how can you help me so there's a lot of explaining to do and educating to do in terms of this is what i do and here's why it matters mm-hmm. then it's about trying to convert that person saying well let's let's work together or what do you think that you want to do or, or whatever so i, I think that hurdle for me at, at, you know, back in the day that used to frustrate me a lot because I felt like, man, it's, it's not fair, right? It's not fair that, you know, I'm doing something that people don't understand and I have to, you know, it's not as simple as, you know, here's what I do, choose me. It's I have to kind of get people to understand what this even is first. But I, I slowly kind of pivoted into being more positive and, and seeing it as an opportunity because I'm like, okay, well, listen, if I still have to explain what this is, it means I'm early. It means that there's still room to become an authority and a dominant figure and a main brand, right? The fact that when you think of mental training for sport, there's not one major brand that comes to mind. It's, it's a it's a huge benefit, right? There's a lot of industry. It's like early real estate. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like, that's how I decided to pivot it, at least mentally for me, motivation wise, was instead of saying, you know, why me? This sucks. I was saying, you know what? This is actually a great opportunity. And if I have a chance to educate the public and start to really form this um, practice in the way that I wanted to in this industry and and be a a dominant figure, that'll be amazing. So it gives me the chance to, of course, there's hurdles involved with it, but the opportunity present is a big one too. And and I think that that's what's made it uh, a a cool pivot in in that sense. Yeah, I think that is an absolutely amazing mindset to have. because a lot of people, when they start their own business or have an idea and they have have the reoccurring, I got to answer all these questions and they get hung up on them. Like, that's how, you know, if you're getting annoyed by that and you're getting like pushed down by it, that's how, you know, you're not going to be successful if you mm-hmm. find yourself doing that. But if you look at it like the way you're looking at it as an opportunity to say, hey, this is better for me because that means there's not a lot of people doing it. And I, and I know it works. I know it helps people. I've seen it in my career already. So that is, that's a great mindset to have, uh, you know, when you're start when you're starting and getting into this space, uh, that's really great to hear. Yeah. Uh, thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. So that, that sort of perfectly transitions us into the process that you go through, uh, when you're working with an athlete. Uh, so, Go ahead and, and explain that, you know, when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Dylan, or you go up to them, you know, I, I need mental training. Yeah. So what I what I say is, is in, in first, even just before it gets to that point of, of what is it um, and, and why is it why does it even matter? I say, well, listen, how much of performance is 
mental versus physical. And, and, you know, I'll preface this by saying there is no, there is no answer. You know, some people say it's 50, 50, some people say it's 99% mental, whatever. It's some, somewhere in between, right? Let's be extra conservative and call it 50, 50. So performance is 50% mental, 50% physical, fair. Well, the question is, is when you look at your training and you look at what you do, where does, where do those numbers align, right? How much of your training is, is physical versus mental? It's probably 90 to 95 to 98% physical. When you, you know, you have to look at what you're doing. There's strength and conditioning and cardio and technical and diet and sleep and supplements. All of these things are physical. So if you're saying that, you know, the mental game is at least 50% of your performance, well, what are we doing to train that, right? So that's that's a discrepancy right there. So, you know, what we're noticing now is that while, you know, a lot of people are understanding that the mental game is a big part of performance, um, there's a huge discrepancy between the impact of the mental game on our performance and the emphasis that we place on developing mental skills. And that discrepancy is what leads to underperformance a lot of the time, right? Times where you compete and you don't compete at the level that you're capable of, or you feel like you could have done more, or that the results didn't match, you know, what you've been seeing from yourself in training. You have to ask, well, why is, why is there a discrepancy between what I know I'm capable of and what I'm showing when I go out there and perform? Again, you have to understand about that discrepancy, you know, the impact of the mental game on our performance compared to the emphasis of, you know, mental skills training, there's, it's gonna, it's gonna create a problem, right? So that's, that's what we do is we really work with athletes to bridge that gap and, and make sure that every time they compete, not only are they physically prepared and, and able to do what they want, but they're mentally ready and able to execute on what they've practiced in training. So how does that actually work? It's about treating mental skills like a skill set, um, not just a way of thinking. I think sometimes we think, oh, mental training, mental skills, motivational speaking, like, no, because that's a little bit less tangible, right? You can train a mental skill set the way you train your physical skill set. You look at it in pillars, right? So what is mental toughness? Mental toughness is motivation, it's consistency, it's discipline, uh, it's resilience, it's flexibility, it's the ability to have positive self-talk, right? So how do we take each individual pillar and build it up to a point where it's a strength? that you can rely on when times get tough, right? So that's what we really work on with, with each athlete is taking the different roots of what mental toughness is and what it funnels into, training that with different exercises, different activities, different worksheets, being able to reference that in training and say, hey, we worked on this thing, take the week in training and try to apply it. Next time we talk, let's review, how did that go? What were some hurdles? What felt really good? So a mix of kind of what I like to say is like a high structure, high flexibility balance where there's a high structure like there's always a plan for what we can do but high flexibility where we can always adjust we can always deviate we can always kind of go with the flow and, and make sure that things are rolling the right way um, but that's the first step is, is treating mindset like any other skill set and developing it tangibly and not just kind of saying well let's just do this and talk once in a while and after six months you'll feel more confident like you know that that's unacceptable to, to, to kind of preface it that way. So it's like, no, if you're, if we're not making an instant impact right away, by, by taking these kind of broader concepts and turning them into tools that you can use to make an instant impact, what are we doing? And that's kind of the way that I see it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and do you ever recommend to athletes that they should work on their mental training that you've told them during physical training, like certain things to think about while they're doing physical training? Yeah, all the time. You know, the thing with the thing with mental training is that you're always engaged in mindset, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's when you're at home, when you're in the car, when you're in the gym, we, we can't turn it off, right? So you're either always engaged in um, like a positive and, and a helpful way of thinking or, or the opposite, right? And, and if you're not deliberate with influencing things the right way you're kind of going to go to the other side so 100 percent, a lot of the things we do is are, are things that are applicable in training so you know for example um an easy one is, is goal setting right so when, when typically people think of goals we think about long-term goals right what do you want to achieve what's your dream what's your vision but you know just as important if not more is kind of the shorter term stuff right not just monthly, not just weekly, but sometimes for each individual training session, right? As an athlete, um, training becomes repetitive. Training becomes redundant. You know, it doesn't matter how passionate you are, how motivated you are. You know, you're, you're training five days a week, two, three times a day. It's going to feel repetitive. How do you 
turn off that autopilot mode that we go into a lot of the time it's, it's setting a specific training goal and telling yourself okay for this week in training i want to be working on a b and c i don't care if everything else goes terribly i don't care if i lose all my rounds but if i'm able to execute on a b and c that's a good week for me right so these are ways in which you can engage in um mental skills and, and mental training while you are physically training because the two things are almost inseparable, right? You can't have one without mm -hmm. the other. You want to make sure that, you know, your physical training is fueled by the right intention. It's fueled by the right backing. And that's what we do is we create a system that enhances, you know, everything moving forward. So is there a baseline that you sort of apply to all different athletes from different sports, or is it different based on uh, each sport, uh, you know, the process that you go through? It's uh, it's it's very similar and, and it's even it's even similar outside of sport, right? You know, yeah. mental skills are so transferable. Um, these are these are concepts that you can use in any specific sport. And like I said, outside of sport, mm -hmm. whether it's in business and relationships, whatever. So things like confidence, motivation, discipline, optimism, uh, goal setting, organization. You know, there's times where this will work with a, a professional fighter. There's times where this will work with a professional tennis player or a swimmer or an Olympian. Um, there's times where we've worked with people in business, CEOs who have come and said, hey, I have uh, a big presentation to do or a pitch. Can we work through some of these kind of performance-based skills? 100%, right? So it, it's totally transferable as long as we have the right context in mind. And I think as long as we start with the context of who are you, why does this matter to you, and what are your objectives, we can form it to match anything. Yeah, interesting. And and I just want to sort of backtrack a little bit and talk about that original session that you had with the mental coach. Uh, I can't remember which point of career you were in, but can you explain the biggest difference between that person that you talked to when you were a kid to the process that you go through now? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, for me, I'm all about being hands-on. Uh, and I'm mm -hmm. all about kind of breaking tradition and the typical relationship that you'd expect with a uh, with a client. So the dynamic for my case, when, you know, me and my teammates went to visit that psychologist was we go to their office, we sit down for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour or however long it was. And, you know, there's a topic that's brought up. We talk about it. Maybe we complete something together and we go home. Right. For me, you know, the interaction doesn't really have a start and an end point the way that it does with kind of the experience I had before. Um, I try to treat the people I work with like I'm just another coach in their corner um, that they always have access to, right? I always want to make sure that I'm available all the time, right? So after training's over, send me a DM, send me a text and say, hey, I worked on what we talked about, felt great or it didn't feel great, here's why, right? I'm always around. I'm always making sure that the communication is fully open. Um, when I can, I'll go travel and I'll watch them train. I'll watch them compete. You know, I flew out to, uh, to Vancouver in October to watch one of my, one of my fighters fight for, uh, for a belt. And I was a part of the corner. I was in the ring with him. Um, and, and it was awesome. Right. So taking, taking those extra steps to make sure that like this interaction doesn't just start when, you know, the timer starts and ends when, you know, the session's over, this is, you know, a, a long-term thing. It's like having any other coach. So for me, that's one of the biggest differences is how hands-on it is, whether it's from a communication standpoint, whether it's a committing and, and watching people train or compete standpoint, um, and, and, and making sure that people feel like um, I'm, I'm another coach that they have in their corner, another resource that they can use at any time, and not just when they book those times in. Interesting. Yeah, because I've, I've always found sort of traditional psychology interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know why, but I keep bringing this up and I'm in a couple of different podcasts, but like, I've been watching the Sopranos, right. And is a bunch of psychology in that show, right. Forget about what you see. It's like, there's, everybody's got a psychiatrist <laughs> and it's just really interesting. I know it's a TV show, but I still think it's reflective on what they actually do. And sometimes I think that doing it the traditional way can hurt people in a way because then they're just feeling bad for themselves over and over and over again. But doing what you do and, and being able to uh, help people from an athletic standpoint, and then it's something that they know, right? 
And then being able to transfer that into actual life, I think is a lot more of a mentally healthy way to apply those skills. If you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting to, when you mentioned traditional psychology, that sort of sparked that idea in my yeah. head. Yeah, um, there's, um, I don't, I don't know if you've seen, there's a, there's a Netflix doc, um, called Stuts with Jonah Hill. And it basically, it's, it's an interaction. I, I don't, I think it's one long movie or, or documentary and it's Jonah Hill basically interviewing his therapist. Right. And it's interesting too, because he's, he's very non-traditional and, mm-hmm. I very much so resonate with one of the things that the therapist said from the very beginning, and it's it's my opinion as well, which is that the traditional therapy or psychology, you're you're told, listen, your opinion doesn't matter. It's not about telling people what to do. It's about helping them figure it out themselves, right? That's like the classic thing. It's don't tell people what to do, help them get there. And and I just think that that's irresponsible you know what i mean like you when you hire someone or you reach out to somebody you're valuing their experience you're valuing their opinion and as much as we'd all love to say it there's no such thing as being objective in in this right you know if you could hire like i I haven't watched the sopranos but if you're saying that everybody has a psychiatrist or psychologist i bet they all have very different personalities right Mm -hmm. so you know when you bring somebody on to help you you're you're bringing on who they are as a person you know individually um of course what they've experienced as well and they try to keep it objective but you know if i was going to hire a coach for myself i would want someone i would value their opinion and their knowledge and i would want them to tell me how it is and how they feel and and i feel like for me that's another thing that maybe i do differently than the than the average person is i'm not afraid to say what i think i'm not afraid to offer my advice and, and my opinion you know, it's not the law. It's not like, hey, because I said this, it's what we're going to do. But it's like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not just going to listen to you and say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, how do you feel? And then let the hour go by. And then you think, well, what did I really get out of that? You know, I was able to let it out and, and maybe just talking to someone's helpful. But what's what specific skills or strategies did I take away from this? What insights was I able to gain? What yeah. was Dylan able to, you know, inform me of through his experience working with other people like me? So for me, it's a huge part of like, I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what my opinion is. And and I think people value that. And I think people walk away from sessions feeling like, okay, this was worth something because I was able to have a productive conversation where we actually got to the bottom of things and came up with solutions as opposed to just, you know, another hour of, all right, thanks for talking. See you next week. Yeah. Interesting. It's like, so you're saying that what's the point of having experience if you can't help other people? long story short, right? Mm -hmm. So taking your experience and applying it to profession compared to other psychiatrists or people in that profession is the incorrect way of doing it. And that's, that's really interesting, not incorrect way, but, but not the way that you enjoy or, or think helps other people in the correct ways. Correct. Yeah. And again, like I said, there's, it's not about, and and you, you, you said it too. It's not about correct or incorrect. It's just different. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the, that's the bottom line is that there's no right or wrong. Everybody comes at it from their own way. So I'm not saying that my way I'm there's, I'm probably in the very small percentage of people that think that way. I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this or here's my take and says, no, 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 like this, this guy's doing it all wrong. And that's fine. You know, we, it's not about what's objectively right or wrong. It's about what's going to be helpful to the person you work with. Right. So I think, Mm -hmm. I think that's what matters. I'm not, I'm not sitting here demonizing the traditional way. I think there's, you know, there's been millions and millions of people who have had so many breakthroughs, you know, working with classical traditional psychologists, uh, psychiatrists and therapists. Great. You know, I'm not, I'm not bashing on that. It's just different. And I choose to approach it using as much context and experience as I can and put that personal touch um, because that's what I would want. And that's typically how I, how I do things, right. You know, if you are, um, if I have a website and I want to fix the SEO on it and I hire a, you know, a, a marketing person or a business coach and I say, how do I make my SEO better? I don't really want to hear like, well, what do you think? Right. Or, yeah. well, you know, you just want to make your website like a little bit more, flow, whatever, like, I want strategies. I want them to say, okay, listen, here's what we should do. You know, you should start with this. You should start with taglines. You start with keywords. And then what we're going to do is we're going to work on this and this. And if it works great, if it doesn't work, we'll adjust. Let me know how it feels. Like, let, like let's take some action, right? Mm-hmm. So again, it's never about the right way or the wrong way. 
Um, it's just about doing it in the way that feels most natural and most comfortable. And for me, I think if I were to do it any other way, I wouldn't feel natural and comfortable, which is why I choose to do it this way, whether it is right or wrong. And I found that's what's been the most helpful to the athletes and, and clients I work with. And, um, you know, we found a lot of a lot of success doing it that way. So I have a, a mindset for you, and I want to hear your opinion on this particular mindset, right? So I was talking to Ross about this, and there's this mindset, right? Somebody always is working harder than me. Therefore, I always need to work harder, right? Does that make sense to you? So what's your opinion on that particular mindset? I think, um, I th again, this is kind of a cop-out answer, but I'll, I'll try to get, you know, more direct with it. You know, everybody, everybody's different. You know, everybody has mm -hmm. different things that motivate them. You know, someone like Ross, he's the type of person where I think that motivates him to, to push harder, right? When he wakes up in the morning and he doesn't feel like going, he's the champ. He has no choice. You know, if he doesn't go, there's a bunch of guys in that division that want his belt. They want his property. He has to go to the gym and, and do it no matter what, right? And I think mm -hmm. that's incredibly motivating, but the, th the, the thing with Ross is that Ross is very educated on recovery and rest. Um, and, and he knows how to balance himself. There's a lot of people who the anxiety around feeling like somebody's always outworking them almost forces them to overdo it to the point where they burn out quickly. Right. So mm -hmm. I think it's a, um, it's an interesting dynamic where some people can thrive with that mindset. Some people, it causes more anxiety than it does motivation. And I think it's important to understand yourself. I think the way that I like to frame it when it comes to kind of quality and quantity is it's like, you'll never win the quantity game, but you can win the quality game, right? If you're waking up at 6am to train, somebody's up at five. It's just a fact, you know, mm -hmm. if you're going to bed at, at 10, someone's going to bed at, at 12, right? If you're training four hours a day, someone's training seven. So you'll, you'll, you'll never win the quantity game. You can win the quality game. You can say, when I choose to show up, I am giving 100% of what I've got. I'm making the most out of every training session. I'm doing my best. I'm engaging in proper thinking, proper intensity. I'm doing things the right way. So, you know, I always encourage athletes, especially the ones who worry about kind of being outworked and, and out-trained, don't worry about the number of hours, work on the quality of what you're doing. Um, and again, when it comes to those little nuances of, of things like that and, and mindsets, everybody's going to have different things that inspire them. So it's again, not to say that that's a, the right way of thinking or the wrong, wrong way of thinking for some people, it's going to motivate them for some people, it's going to stress them out. So I think the baseline is listen, you know, do it your way. Um, mm -hmm. Because the last thing that you can do is try to copy somebody else and, and mimic them and, and make it perfect. So figure out what works best for you, drill that. And that's typically how you'll find the best results. That is not a cop-out answer. That is a very good answer. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Cause I, I, I like I like to watch some think tanks sometimes and they talk about things like that. And there's always a person on there who is a sympathetic and they feel bad for everybody. And then there's a guy on there who's the hardcore kind of guy that's saying, no, this is the way to think. But you're completely right. Everybody's different. You have to apply different mindsets to different people. Right. And that brings me to my next question. Uh, is there a particular mindset that you feel yourself sort of recommending to a, a lot of different athletes? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think the mental skill of reflection and self-awareness is very, very important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a few, honestly, I think there's a lot of themes I, I can, I can touch on a few too. So the first one is actively engaging in reflection, right? As people who are always prisoner to the present moment right we can't go back we can't go forward we're just always in the now um time flies you know time flies and and it's uh if we're not being very mindful about the progression we've been making it's, it's hard to assess how far we've come right you know you've had all these episodes of your podcast and you know how many times have you gone back and listened to the first five or the first ten right so i mean how many times have you done it um, I would say quite a few. I, okay. I've been, I've been doing it for a year and a half now and it's kind of crazy. I, it doesn't feel like that long, you know, and I'm almost on my 50th episode, which is crazy as well. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, I think it's really healthy for me to go back and I sort of see my progression as a person and 
as like a podcast host as well. Like you go back and listen to the first one. I'm not really even sure how to intro the friggin' thing. Like I don't yeah. even know what to say. <laughs> but luckily I had a great guest on sort of helped me with that. But yeah, I, I go back and listen to quite a few. So that, you know what? So that's that's amazing. And, and that's exactly what I think more people should be doing. Like you said, the insights of understanding how far you've come, the progressions you've made, because I'm sure there's times where you're like, man, am I even doing this the right way? And you're like, well, yeah, because look at how much I've struggled early on. You know, I struggled with my intros and this and that. And now my intros are solid. So like clearly I've, I've gotten better when, when we don't do that, when we don't engage in, in kind of reflecting, we don't know where we're at. We don't know how far we've come. We, you know, it's, it's easy to still feel like you're not good enough. You're not doing the right thing. So, you know, a behavior that I try to encourage everybody to do is, is to reflect and to journal a lot after training, right? Go to Walmart, grab a $3 notebook throw it in your, in your gym bag. And after every training session, write it down, write down what you did, how it felt, what were some moments that frustrated you? What were some moments that you thrived in? And, you know, how can you better inform next training session, right? Something Mm -hmm. as simple as that, because there's a quote that I really like, and it says, you have to collect the dots to connect the dots, right? You can't see trends that you haven't kind of look, you haven't gathered the info for, right? So when we just train and train and train and train, and we do that in perpetuity, I mean, how do I really know how much I've developed over the past little bit? How do I know where I've struggled and where I've thrived? The ability to document your progress and and look at that process along the way is is massive. So I think, you know, one of the mental skills or or training tools is get a training journal, throw it in your bag. And even if you're not an athlete, you can still do this. You know, at the end Mm -hmm. of your day, write it down. How did I feel today? You know, what were my energy levels like? You know, was, uh, was today a really productive day and why, you know, did I wake up extra early? Did I have a good meal? Uh, or was today kind of a slower day where I didn't feel like doing anything? You know, did I not sleep that well last night? Did I skip lunch? Did I kind of get distracted on, on my phone? Right. We can all engage in that, which is just documenting and, and it doesn't have to make sense right away, but it will. And I think that's the important part is again, you take a month of doing this, let's say all of January, you decide every day I'm going to write in this journal. It doesn't have to be long. It can be two sentences. It could be a full page. If you don't like to write, open up your phone, record in your voice memos, and just talk about the day. Here's what I did. Here's how I felt about it. And here's what I want to do tomorrow, right? As simple as that. Well, guess what? Four weeks later, six weeks later, you're going to be able to look back and say, well, hmm, what were my three most productive days of the month, right? And you look at that, you break it down. Well, why? Then you go again, what were my three kind of most challenging days? Again, maybe see some trends. Maybe go, oh, interesting. On my on my three most productive days, I was actually doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. Interesting. I didn't realize that on the days where I woke up an hour earlier, I actually felt way better. You know, usually I don't wake up that early because I feel tired and I feel like that fatigue will impact my day. But, you know, if I actually found that getting up out of bed when I look at my three best days were those days. Or you might look at your three worst days and go, hmm. Yeah, I had a lot of phone time on those days. I got distracted. I was on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. Those were those kind of chewed into my productivity or, oh, you know, on those days I got surprise calls from my uncle who likes to call me sometimes and that kind of distracted me or, you know, I didn't have a chance to have my coffee in the morning, whatever, right? But again, we have an intuitive sense of what we think the right answers are, but until you document that and you track it, you have no idea. Right. So again, like I said, you have to collect the dots to connect the dots until you gather enough information. You'll have no idea how to put that that together. But when you do, the picture makes sense. So that that's one tool um, that I try to encourage everybody to do is get a training journal, document your process, use it to better inform kind of where you're at, where you've come from and where you need to go. And it's uh, for something so simple to engage in the results and the benefits that come from it are, are monumental. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I always have like I have a couple notebooks just on my desk. I have another one in my car. I probably have three more in my car to be completely honest with you. Cause I always find myself writing stuff down and it, and it just clicks in my head better. If I, if I write it compared to typing it or putting it in my notes on my phone, cause I'll forget mm-hmm. about it. But something about writing things down really resonates with me. And I'll tell you a couple of years ago, I was thinking about leaving this job that I had and for the first time ever, I mean, I'm only 21, so I haven't had that many jobs. I went into my, I bought like this moleskin, uh, like notebook on Amazon. Like, cause I'm, it's like a $20 notebook and it's a nice notebook. And I sort of wrote down why I was thinking about leaving this company. And I actually was going through it the other day and it was like almost, 
a year and a half ago, two years ago now. And I just read it and I'm like, man, that's really interesting to be able to go and, and look back at that, you know, and sort of my reasoning why. And and that leaving that position was sort of the catalyst that hurtled me into what I'm doing now. I don't think if I left that position, I would be doing what I am doing right now. And it's just interesting to see what I wrote down at that point in time. Uh, and I think it was very healthy for me as well. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like a knowledge vault. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, can, I can go into training journals that I had back in 2012 and comb through that. And it's crazy to see, you know, like what were those things I was really struggling with? What were those things that were, were on my mind? And it's just cool to have, you know, I think we have a tendency to overestimate our memory. You know, like, ah, you know, I can write it down, but I'll, I, I won't forget this it's our brain's job to forget things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like our brain has very limited storage and we're interpreting like, oh, like a million pieces of information a day. So like our brain's job is to delete things. So you have to, you have to think like, okay, let me do something to store this. You know, people say, well, even, even wait until you get home. You're like, oh, well, I, I'm not going to take my journal in my bag. I'll, I'll leave it on my bed. Well, guess what? By the time you drive home, you listen to the radio, you called your mom, you checked your phone, you got a couple texts, you got an email you have to respond to. Oh, yeah, let me put that in my reminder. And then by the time, you know, you get to it, it's late and you're like, oh, you know what, I'll just do it tomorrow. Then it's way too late. So it's like, do it now. Take care of it while it's fresh, because every minute that goes by, you know, the half life of that memory is just deteriorating. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that, because, you know, I've I played baseball my whole life. It's really the only sport that I really dedicated my, my life to. Uh, and I, I said this on the podcast with Ross Yogi Berra said baseball is 90% mental. And the other half is 90% uh, mental. And the other half is physical. Right. And baseball, I mean, and I couldn't agree with that more. It's such a mental sport because like, unlike any other sport, you go onto that field. And when you hit, like you're going to fail. 70% of the time. And if you fail 70% of the time, you're considered incredibly good. Most of the time, guys will fail uh, eight times or even nine times out of 10 at the high school level. You know, guys will be hitting 100 for a batting average, you know, and being able to just walk away from that at bat, learning from what you did and then applying that to future at bats is the most difficult thing to do, I think, in sports because like in basketball, imagine if a guy only made three out of 10 shots, right? Or in golf, if he only, if you only hit, uh, you know, 30% of the shots, good. Like you are not a pro, you know, and, uh, or, or, or in football, if, if a quarterback had a 30% passing completion percentage or whatever, like, those aren't good numbers, but in baseball and I, and I, and I can probably say, thanks to baseball, I like to think I'm somewhat mentally tough because I was never a great player. So there you go right there. I mean, I failed, you know, more than other people did who were better than me at the sport. Um, so I think I was pretty lucky to sort of resonate with that sport. And, and I still love it to this day. I coach and, uh, I always tell kids when I coach, it's like, listen, like, don't look at an at bat as a failure. You know, don't look at anything as a failure. Look at it as a learning point because what look at it and say, okay, what did I learn? All right. Uh, well, it was an O2 count and I was sitting on a curveball and he threw me a fastball and I couldn't adjust. So, all right. Next time you go up to hit, think fastball adjust so that if he throws you a fastball, you're ready for it. Or if he throws you a curveball, you can sit on it. You know what I mean? So you 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 reflect on these different things that you've that you've learned in different at bats. It wasn't a failure; it was a learning point. Uh, but yeah, that's my tangent. I always go off on one tangent every yeah. podcast. <laughs> no, I like it. I think I think that's like a huge point. And I think to what you're saying too, it's such a it's such a mental game. Baseball, like you said, you're you're failing more than you're succeeding. And I think it's such an important kind of mental framework to have is, is being resilient. You know what I mean? Like almost mm -hmm. emotional, emotional resilience is being able to kind of like take a punch in the face mentally and bounce back anyway. Right. And, and I think for you, it's, it's those times where you strike out or you don't hit the ball once. It's not about being perfect. It's about understanding that, you know, one failure is fine and you're moving on to the next one. It, it's how quickly can you shake those things off? Right. I think that when it comes to baseball, I think that's one of the, biggest kind of mentalities is not about how many you hit, it's how, how well can you shake it off when you miss 
right? Exactly. It's, like you said, it's a sport where you're failing more than you're not. So that that's what it comes down to. You know, you watch basketball. When you're on a hot streak, it's easy to feel confident. It's easy to take mm-hmm. that open shot, right? You know, you've made four in a row. Give me the ball. But what happens when you've gone over four, ball's in your hands, you're going to hesitate. Should mm-hmm. I shoot this one? Should I pass it? And by the time you decide, it's too late. There's a defender like, there, yeah. right? So resilience yeah. and being able to, to roll the punches and to – bounce back from things and to shake things off is a critical skill. And I think it's an important one in business as well. You know, you're going to, you're going to cold call someone for your business and they're going to shut you down. Do you oh, say, yeah. well, I suck. I quit. This is the worst. Or do you say, well, you know, let me do a hundred more and look at my averages. Right. Mm-hmm. There you go. So I, I think when it comes to comparing sports to business, I think baseball probably makes a lot more sense in terms of how transferable it is because you're going to fail more than you succeed. But if you can get that just one home run, it's worth it. Right. Yeah. Who cares if you struck out twice? If you go up there and you get a home run and you save a game, it's all worth it. Right. So, you know, you have to be um, familiar with failure. You know, you have to be able to accept it for what it is, use it as a learning opportunity and move on. The moment that we see failure as I suck, I'm bad, I can't do this. Well, you know, the next time you step up to the plate, there's no chance you're going to give yourself, you know, what you need to to thrive. It's about saying, you know what, like you said, didn't go my way last time, learn from it. Why was it? And we adjust. The adjustment might work, it might not work, but you're always learning and you always have the intention of, hey, you know, I'm not bad at this. This is just how it goes. And redefining my expectations from I need to hit every single ball that comes my way to I just need to get better each time. And if I can hit the ones that I planned for and prepared for, it's perfect, right? So it's, uh, I, I think that's an interesting point that I never really thought of with baseball, baseball too. It's like, it's probably one of the most transferable sports to business because, probably more like what business is, is more failures than mm-hmm. um, successes. And what are you going to do when you fail? Are you going to put your head down and walk away and quit? Or are you going to keep pushing? And it's that like um, that indomitable spirit and that pushing through and that persistence that you need to thrive in anything, whether it's relationships or work or sports. And, uh, you know, you, you need that. You're never going to succeed 100% of the time. What separates champions from everybody else is what they do when they fail. I think that's the important part. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and one of my last questions, uh, it, can you point out any athletes in particular, you don't have to say names, but you can tell a story of how this person came to you or you went to them and you turn their athletic career around. Is there any stories that come to mind in particular? Like I said, you don't have to name anybody. You can just tell a story. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot, honestly. And, and, you know, the fact that there are so many, I mean, even reflecting on it now is, is, is really cool. And it's, it's kind of why I do what I do. There's a lot of, but especially, especially fighters, you know, it's, uh, it's all about record. So it's kind of the opposite to baseball, right? Baseball, you fail a lot, but the success makes it worth it with fighting. You know, there, your record is everything, you know, mm-hmm. every, every loss is another, you know, it's another L on your record. And, you know, when it comes to making big shows, people are very cautious about that. So when you start to lose a few, it could be a downward downward spiral for a lot of people because you know you start to make bad decisions right if i've lost a few in a row i want to quickly get that back at whatever cost right so maybe that means taking on an opponent maybe i'm not ready for maybe it means taking a short notice fight that i haven't had time to to train for maybe it means flying out and and going somewhere without my coaches because they can't make it but I'm, i'm desperate right so a lot of the time losing leads to desperation which leads to more losing and then it's a downward spiral so some of my proudest moments have been able to take someone who's kind of been at the start of that spiral and completely turn it around. So take someone who's had one or two or three losses in a row and say, okay, hold on, let's do this the right way, right? Let's make sure that we are fixing what needs to be fixed. Let's train what needs to be trained. And let's make sure that the next time that you step in there and compete, you're confident that it's the best version of you. I don't care if you win or lose. Of course, I would rather everybody win. If I had it my way, everyone I work with wins all the time. Nobody loses. Beautiful story. It's never going to happen, right? My, my expectation is that every time you step in there and compete, whether it's in a UFC octagon, whether it's on the NBA courts, whether it's on the football field, whatever it is, you're able to compete at the highest level of your potential, right? You're maxing out on that capability because guess what? Win or lose, you're going to be a lot more fulfilled because of that. The worst feeling in the world is not just losing. It's losing when you know that you shouldn't have lost. It's a mistake that you made, right? If you go out there, you get outclassed by someone that's just way better than you. It sucks, but like, it makes sense. The worst feeling in the world is losing when you know you shouldn't have. It's blowing an opportunity that was yours to have. 
right? So my goal when I work with athletes is let's make sure that, you know, everybody has a level of potential or something in them that they can go out there and get. Every time you compete, if you can perform to the level that you're capable of, if you can execute on the skills that you've developed throughout your training and you go out there and you perform at a level that you're proud of, who cares what happens? And guess what? If you can do that, why won't the results follow? Right. Mm -hmm. If you're going out there and you're competing at the highest level of your potential, of your capabilities, why can't you get that win? Why won't the results follow? Right. So it's about not putting results first, which is what a lot of people can, can overthink about. It's putting results second, putting the process first, understanding that with the right process, the results come. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are those are some of the stories that have been great for me is, is taking, you know, athletes that have been on a, a bit of a losing streak and completely turning it around um, and, and going from there. I, I have an athlete I work with now who came to me was I think he was 0 and 2 or 0 and 3. And now he's had three three wins in a row since we've been working together. And, and again, you know, I'm, I, I won't take sole credit over that. There's, you know, a lot of things that go into competing at a high level. But to have an influence over that is is amazing. And, you know, that's why I do what I do. And it's not just to take people that are losing and, and get them to win. It's to take people that are winning consistently at a high level and make sure it's even more consistent, right? Someone like Ross is another example of the other end of the spectrum, right? Ross doesn't, doesn't come and say, I'm struggling with all of these different things. I really desperately need help. Ross is incredibly mentally tough. He's incredibly motivated and disciplined and driven. And I think he's a perfect case study to show that someone like that can still benefit and thrive with a mental trainer and a, and a mental skills program. It's let's take what you're naturally good at and naturally gifted at, and let's stretch that out. Let's see what we can do when we really take that foundation that's so rich and add to it, right? I think a, a big misconception about mental training is, what if I don't struggle with anything? You know, I, I don't have motivation issues. I don't have low self-esteem. You know, maybe I don't benefit from, from a mental performance coach or, or a mental coach or mental skills training. It's the opposite, right? You know, Floyd Mayweather, best boxer out there, arguably, still has a boxing coach, right? He doesn't just show up and say, well, I don't need to train anymore because I'm so good. It's like, no, because you're good is why you need to train even harder, right? So when you show up to something like this, you could be incredibly tough and gritty and talented and focused and motivated. So if you have such a rich foundation that you haven't done anything with, imagine how much we could stretch that out if we start to incorporate the right tools behind it. So wherever you're coming at this from, there's so many ways to benefit. And I think that's one of the things that I try to, to, to push is the narrative of like, hey, it's not about taking someone that's bad and making them good. It's taking someone that's amazing and making them even better for a consistent amount of time until they want to stop. Mm. Great. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And the last question I have for you, and I ask everybody on the podcast this question, if you could leave the listeners with one piece of advice, it could be business, life, anything you want it to be, what would that piece of advice be? It's a good question. Um, I, I think for me, a really important piece of advice that not only I, I pitch, but I, I also live by myself is, is the importance of being flexible, you know? We think of toughness as forward motion, you know, being able to just push through and, and persist. A big part of toughness is, is being emotionally flexible, going with the flow. You know, when something throws you off, letting it roll off your shoulders, you know, something as simple as, you know, you were really expecting, you know, you're, you know, you pitch something to a client, you were really expecting it to go your way and it just didn't. What are you going to do? You can't control that. It's done, right? Do you get really upset by it? Or you just roll with it, right? Um, you know, you you are sitting in traffic and it, and it pops up unexpectedly. Again, same thing. What are you going to do? Drive through it? You can't. You have to just roll. And say, well, this is what it is. You know, I have a meeting in 20 minutes. I'm going to be late for. What can I do? Maybe I can call them quickly, let them know, right? Like being flexible, I think, is is one of the most important things that, that we can be because life is too dynamic. Um and like, it's too dynamic to not be flexible, right? Mm -hmm. You can't stick your feet in the sand and say, this is how it's going to be. I said it was going to be this way, so it has to happen. Anyone that's very rigid is very vulnerable, right? Because then they get set off very easily. There's a lot of people that are like super tough, quote unquote, that like look like they're killers, but they're like, you know, very rigid. And sometimes it, from a fighting standpoint and, and a fighting example, the easiest people to fight are the people that just see red and, and push forward like a bull because then you mm. can really manipulate that, right? Same thing with business. What do you do when your pitch deck doesn't load and you have to ad-lib it, right? Are you going to freak out? You're going to roll the punches, right? 
what are you going to do when your haircut gets canceled and you have to just show up anyway and you feel like you don't look like yourself, whatever, little things, right? It could be the tiniest thing like that, or it could be monumental things. It's what are you going to do and how do you respond when things don't go your way? Be flexible, go with the flow, roll with the punches. You're always a lot better off doing that. And again, it's a skill. It doesn't matter whether you naturally have it or you don't naturally have it. It's a skill you can work towards. It's just about being mindful that it is a skill. Emotionally flexible, go with the flow, roll with things. I think if everybody can equip that mental trait to their arsenal, we'll be way better off and, and way less stressed out a lot of the time. Great. Well, that's a very great piece of advice. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, and, and thank you for coming on. I've had an absolutely amazing conversation with you. And I've learned a lot throughout this conversation as well. Thanks a lot, Manuel. This was awesome. It was great to hear um, to your perspectives on things too. This was great. Yeah. Thank you very much. And thank you everybody for listening to the Knowledge is Power podcast. Make sure if you want to hear this episode or any other episode, before it's posted on widely available platforms, you can subscribe to the Knowledge of Power podcast on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. You can get early access to episodes weeks before they're available. So make sure to subscribe to Knowledge of Power and support the podcast. Also follow Knowledge of Power on Instagram. And thank you guys again for listening. And I will catch you in the next